you turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, and again we are completing a, a series of studies that have had us spend time in John's gospel for over a year now. I think we're on study number 70, so the better part of a year and a half. Uh, we've journeyed chapter and verse through John's gospel, and as we come to chapter 20, again, a passage that would normally be reserved for Easter morning. This incredible message, but as I began last week, really putting this in perspective for Christmas, this would be the most cruel hoax ever perpetrated on mankind if Jesus remained dead after all that he had done and everything he had said. If he did not rise from the grave, then his whole life really would have been almost torture for us. Because he came and repeatedly said that he was going to die, that he was going to give his life a ransom for many. He reminded the Jewish people that he was, in fact, uh, the one that Abraham called I am, the one that Moses called I am. Those that were looking for the Messiah, he said, I am he. He's been announced as the king of the Jews, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, And now we come to this passage of scripture where we read the account of that first day of the week, which for us is our Christmas gift from Jesus. That empty tomb is a gift, amen? Because he's not there. It is empty. And whether you go to the church of the sepulcher, the holy sepulcher, or whether you go to the garden tomb, uh, if you look for the bones of Jesus, you won't find them. Every place you go to look for him, you're going to find him not there because we actually know where he is because he said where he was going. He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might be also. He said, look, I'm going to prepare a home for you. That is our theme for our Christmas series of messages. Jesus has gone to prepare a home. And so now, now we find that first instant where the disciples come to terms with the fact that Jesus is not dead, but in fact he's alive. So would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 1 here in John chapter 20. And a brand new day. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to this world to be our Emmanuel, God with us. And that you, Jesus, didn't count it robbery, though you were equal with Father God, to take upon you the form of a man and to give your life on Calvary's cross, a ransom for our sin. But because you are risen, so shall we also be raised to come home to you. We thank you, Lord, for that gift. Speak to us now through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, John chapter 20. And now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that a stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples. So again, John not wanting to brag, but he was there whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb 
and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, I want you to notice something. She still believes Jesus is dead. She still, we don't know where he has been laid. That's not what you do with a live person. That's what you do with a dead person. So she is still waiting for the definitive proof that we all know Jesus gave. She's still looking with the eyes of faith, but she still has some doubts about her faith. She's come to the tomb. There's some faith in her life. But she's about to have that faith realized, and it's about to turn into believing faith. Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb, and so they both ran together. There's a little bragamony from John. And the other disciple outran Peter and came first to the tomb. I beat the old fisherman there. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, and he, he did not go in. And it seems to indicate from the original text that it's as if he was expecting to find the dead Jesus there and seeing the claws in the shape of a body. I don't know if I can handle this. He sees what he sees initially. And if you notice as we journey from verse 5 to 6 to 8, you're going to see the word see in there three times. And each time, it increases as a verb in severity, and we'll look at that in a little bit. He's glancing. You see, very often people are kind of glancing to see what this whole Jesus thing is about. He looks in. He didn't go in, though. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and noticed the addition. The handkerchief, the the head wrap that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, if you're a grave robber, that's not one of those things that you do. It's like it's an in and out job. And furthermore, the grave clothes are undisturbed. They're still in the form of a body laying on this stone bench where normally the body would be left to decay. And so here's this pile of undisturbed clothes, but the head wrap, which was always put on last, the reason so, as they were preparing the body, they wanted to gaze on the face as long as they possibly could. So the head was left until the very last thing. It was wrapped by itself. It wasn't like the traditional, you know, mummy from the 1950s movies. There was a single head napkin that was used to cover the face. Jesus passes through those. Still got the head napkin on, stands up, unwraps that, folds it. This will freak them out. Puts it on the stone bench there in the tomb. Each little detail here is so important. 
And then the other disciple, that would be John, who came to the tomb first, also went in and he, notice verse 8, saw. It's the same word, but it's a slightly more intense form. And believed. You see, they saw something when they gazed in. They saw more when they actually looked at what they were gazing at. And now there was a factor that was so great that when they saw what they saw, they believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And of course, the only scriptures they would have known were the Old Testament. The New Testament was being birthed in their hearts and minds. It would be written down years later. But they were trying to think back on all that they knew from the Old Testament, as we would call it from the Torah, from the Tanakh. And the disciples went away again unto their own homes. And what a difference a day makes, amen? Think about it. And here they are, they're looking, they're, they're doing the right thing. There's a measure of faith. But the life of Jesus would be meaningless without the, meaningless without the death of Jesus And the death of Jesus would be meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus just came, and as as we honor our dead here in this country, when you travel to Washington, D.C., and you go to the various monuments, and whether it's the Vietnam Memorial or the World War II or Martin Luther King's memorial, or, or perhaps you go to Arlington Cemetery and you pass the presidential graves, if you've ever stood at the eternal flame that's on JFK's grave, we, we honor the dead, but I can tell you something about those graves, JFK's in there. His desiccated corpse is in that grave. Eventually you'll find his bones in that grave. But whether you go to the garden tomb or the church of the Holy Sepulcher, here's what you're going to find in Jerusalem. Nada. Nothing. Zero. Zip. And here's why that's important. Because you had a whole plethora of people in Jerusalem, if they could have produced Jesus' body, it would have been to their great advantage to do exactly that. The Romans would have taken him and marched him around. Look, the dude's dead, okay? Go back to your measly lives. We killed him. The Jewish people would have paraded him around. Some Messiah he is. He's dead. The disciples would have made an icon out of him. And he died for what he believed. And they would have taken, probably built a shrine to him. But he was not dead. He's very much alive. And he had previously told them, I am going to prepare a place for you. And now he's starting to put the pieces together for them. And you can see that, and we'll see that in a little bit as we look at Mary's response to all of this. Look, Jesus is alive. As you look at what happened in the life of Jesus, there's actually only one conclusion you can come to. Look, Jesus was not an isolated figure of history. Jesus was a very public figure. 
And in fact, more is written about Jesus than any other person in ancient history. And not just in your Bible. The Jewish historian Josephus, a Roman. Flavius Josephus. Philo, Eusebius. These historians who took great care in writing the history of Palestine over and over identified the exact same facts that are contained within your Bible. That Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and thousands of people claimed to have seen him after he was buried in the grave and raised three days later. Your Bible plainly declares that. And so when you're talking about Jesus, you're not talking about just a historical figure. You're talking about the one that began this gospel in chapter 1. Remember what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does it say in verse 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That one who was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us is still alive. That grave couldn't hold him. You see, people have to deal with that. Truth demands that it be dealt with. And in the incidents of even our own legal system here in this country, if you want a slam dunk case, here's what you need to do. Produce an eyewitness testimony of someone who saw the events that can be verified. And if you do that, it's pretty much an instantaneous conviction of that being true, what has been said. Now today in our day and time, we use cameras at every intersection and on every building, and we end up with a lot of eyewitness testimony. We can actually see what happened. Back then, that was people. And the way that you could tell if someone was telling the truth about a specific thing is if they would take it so far as to tell you that with their dying breath. You see, because I believe today the Los Angeles Chargers are going to beat the Cincinnati Bengals. But I'm telling you, I'm not staking my life on it, okay? But if I were so convinced that that was true, that I would stake my life on it, you would have to say, he must know something that I don't know. That is exactly what you have with the authors of the Gospels. And in fact, the author of this Gospel, John, is going to be imprisoned for the rest of his days on a little tiny island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea, for the word of his testimony because he would not recant that Jesus Christ was alive. Now I'm kind of thinking if I'm living in a cave and eating bat wings, that's not like Popeye's at all. I don't know what you got in there, but it wasn't good. He was not getting takeout from China Garden or anything, you know. 
And I could get out of there by simply saying, well, this whole, you know, risen from the dead thing, all right, all right, all right. You know, I didn't really see that. But he died for that testimony. Why is that important to us today? Because Jesus is the Savior. That's what he declared. Jesus is the sanctifier. He's the only one that can transform you from the inside out. Jesus Jesus is right now also the intercessor because he said he was going home to prepare a place for us that where he, he is, we might be also. So he's interceding for you right now, amen? Can I tell you something else? One day he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. To judge the world. He is still alive and he is coming back. The only question is, do you believe that? I believe it. There's been enough evidence in my own life that I believe that above everything else in my entire existence. There are some things that I think I know. I I believe in the theory of gravity. And if I jump off of here, my old knees are going to crinkle. It's going to be, you'll laugh and it'll be humorous, but it's going to hurt. I believe in gravity. I'm going to accelerate at 10 meters per second squared as I jump off of this, okay? That's what's going to happen. But more than that, I believe one day I'm going to stand on this earth and see my Savior face to face. Amen? I believe that. There's been enough evidence presented to me that that is not something that I totally just, you know, somebody said it, so I believe it. No, I believe my faith is actually reasonable. There's a book that's been used since it was written in 1846. Simon Greenleaf, when he authored this work, The Testimony of the Evangelist, it's been shortened and rewritten. It is now a three-volume set, a treatise on the law of evidence. It's still used in law schools today. And it's principally used for one very specific type of evidence. That's the evidence of eyewitnesses. He was not a believer. He set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. He couldn't deal with the whole fact that there was a miracle that happened. And in doing so, he himself came to faith in Christ. And so as he writes this book, which is still used as a way for us to understand whether someone's telling the truth as an eyewitness or not, he came to the conclusion that the evidence was so strong for the resurrection of Jesus where it tried in a court of law, Jesus would be found to have been resurrected. And so he begins to digest all of this. And as he writes, he says some pretty amazing things. He said, concerning my own specific inquiry, the veracity of these witnesses has to be applied to the same rules that would be employed by any and all human beings throughout time. In other words, when you look at this kind of evidence, is it the similar kind of evidence? If I were going to a court of law and we saw something happened on the freeway and you and I pulled up, I was there, I watched the cars hit each other, car A went into car B and car C slammed into car A and B and we all saw it. And the reason this is important is because it lies, the burden of proof lies on the person who disagrees with an eyewitness because the eyewitness is saying, I saw it. 
John is saying, I saw these things. Not somebody told me about them. He was witness to the events himself. And in fact, he writes this story with himself in it. He's not saying, well, I saw Mary. Peter told me about it. No, he had a foot race with Peter, which he proudly declares, I kicked his... I won. I beat him. That's a pretty bizarre piece of evidence if you're trying to concoct a lie, amen? There's not something you'd throw in there. Simon Greenleaf goes on. He then writes what would become known as the law of ancient documents. He said every document, apparently ancient, coming from the proper repository or custody, bearing on its face no evident marks of forgery. The law presumes it to be genuine. It then devolves on the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. In other words, if I pull out an ancient document, you've got to prove to me it's not an ancient document. You have to prove to me that it's not what it says it is. And here's why that is That is important. There are more pieces of evidence about Jesus from ancient history than any other person in ancient history. There is no one that even comes close. There are over 20,000 documents that speak of the testimony of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in those documents, talks about the very same things that are contained in your Bible, and they're not from the Bible. That's pretty powerful evidence. It's one of the reasons that the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. And while most of that was documentation of the Old Testament, guess what the Old Testament spoke of? We now have an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah. It's contained in the shrine of the book at the Israel History Museum. You can, you can walk around a facsimile copy of it. It's so valuable, the real one's not there, but an exact copy of it is. And there it is, Isaiah 52 and 53. The chastisement for our peace would be placed upon him. The exact words are there. Oh, and by the way, we have a copy of Psalm 22 from 212 B.C. Eloi, Eloi, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The prophet David knew that. How did he know? How did Jesus know to say that? How did John know to record that? Why? It's the testimony of an eyewitness. You see, real faith always gets tested. Your faith is going to be tested. My faith is going to be tested. And so Simon Greenleaf came up with five things. He said, look, the the credit due a testimony of witnesses depends on five basic things. He said, first, their honesty. Look at the honesty of John. He admits his own faults, his own weaknesses. He says, I don't have any faith. If you're writing a book about yourself, do you put that in there? I am completely faithless and didn't get it. I didn't have a clue. That's not what you're going to write. I mean, I love you guys, but you're going to put in there, well, I had great faith. It was the rest of them. 
There's total honesty. The second thing is their ability. Did they have the ability to recount the story because they actually were there? We have extra biblical testimony that the apostle John was the longest living of all the apostles and he recorded these things himself. A third thing was the number and consistency of their testimony. How many gospels are there? Four. And they corroborate every major detail, one with another, even though they're written by four different people from four different perspectives. There's no inconsistency in their testimony. Bring in four eyewitnesses into a court of law and they all say the same thing. Guess what you get? A conviction. Happens with Jesus. The conformity of their testimony with the experience of others. When other people see the same things, what did they say about it? Guess what? The Romans even said Jesus Christ was innocent and they recorded that. And then finally, the coincidence of their testimony with collateral circumstances, things not directly related to the case. The whole of the history of Palestine is told basically through the lens of Jesus. That's important to us. Because one day, there's going to be a real simple test. That test is going to be given to you. It's going to be given to me. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus, in other words, to you? You see, I can tell you he's my Savior and he's my Lord, and I do. Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. I believe he was a real historical figure, that he really died on a cross in Jerusalem. And that he was buried in a grave. And the Romans, who were really good at killing people and making sure that they stayed in the grave that they were put him in, that he was put into, failed to keep Jesus in that grave. Why? Because Jesus was God. Nothing could have held him in that grave. Because he came to die. He would be buried. But he came to be raised again. For my salvation. For my sanctification. And ultimately for my glorification. Amen? Amen? Your faith is going to be tested. We, we, we can look at Mary's testimony now in all of this and notice that she's, she doesn't know what she's thinking. She just knows she needs to go complete the burial process. So she runs down to the tomb. It was done hastily. She wanted to honor the body of the Lord Jesus. She's actually looking for him to be in the tomb. Consequently, what we see in the story about her understanding. Mary was going to learn a greater message. It wasn't that he was alive and he was dead, but that he was risen. That's going to come to her in moments. So Mary's faith through this testing was not extinguished. Your faith is going to be tested. Not so it will be extinguished, but so it will grow. Mary needed this test. 
Real faith is going to run towards the truth. As this foot race is undertaken, we don't know if John was younger. We're not sure of the physical condition. We only know that he got there first. We have to give him credit for actually running to the tomb. I'm not sure I would have done that. I don't know that I would have wanted to to see the body of the man because they obviously are, are expecting to find Jesus in the tomb. As a pastor, I'm kind of tired. I'm tired of seeing what sin does in this world, resulting in death. It's a painful thing to grieve with people when they're grieving. Anybody says, man, I'm just really looking forward to this memorial service's funeral. That's some of the most difficult, emotional trial that you can go through is sitting with people while they grieve the loss of their loved one. But she's running. They're running. John's running. Peter's running. And notice in verse 5, there's three words that you see or saw here. And the first one, it says he kind of glanced in. It's like, oh, it's open. I, ah. And he just looks. But expecting to see Jesus in there, it's like, ah, I don't want to look. And then in verse 6, it's going to change a little. They're going to look and kind of inspect carefully. And it's at that point, it's kind of like, I think those grave clothes are empty. There's, hmm. It means to inspect. They're actually looking with the intent to understand. But it doesn't end there. You see, because you can look with the intent to understand. But until you get to the place that you see in verse 8, which is to understand with total comprehension, intelligent comprehension, to actually understand what you're seeing, now it becomes an issue of faith. He is not here. But the grave clothes are. And not only are they undisturbed laying here on the bench, the head napkin's over there. It's beginning to go through their mind. He's not here. But he wasn't stolen. The grave wasn't desecrated. Nobody came in looking for Jesus' jewelry. He didn't have any. He had nowhere to lay his head. The Romans would have been glad to parade him around Jerusalem. So would have been the Jews. And the disciples, as I said, would have been really glad to be able to build a a memorial to, to Jesus. But he wasn't there. Verse 11. Now we pick up the scene with Mary. You see, because as you're running to that truth, as you're perceiving that truth, as you're understanding that truth, eventually... Real faith overcomes doubt and it overcomes the darkness. You see, they're looking into this darkened tomb. They have severe doubts about what they're actually seeing. They obviously did not believe that Jesus was alive. They came expecting to find his body. 
Notice verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus, past tense, had lain. It's kind of like they're sitting sitting there going, you know, the hand model thing from the infomercial? Check it out. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And notice the doubt. Notice the darkness that's still there. Notice her mind is having a tough time. Can I tell you that God understands your doubt? He understands your fear. He understands that you don't understand. He knows what you don't know. He gets what you don't get. And he's not put off by that. He will give you further understanding until it reaches that place to where you can do what Mary is about to do. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Again, she's saying, look, he's dead. Somebody took his body. I don't know where he is. And now when she said this, she turned around And saw Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus. I love this. This is what we we call in theologic terms progressive revelation. God is showing her things a little bit at a time. And each time the light gets turned up just a little bit. For those of you that have ever had the experience in the mountains. We used to keep the actual kerosene lanterns in our house because they'll burn for 12 or 14 hours much better than a candle they're very bright but you have to keep the wicks trimmed on them and you you keep them turned down and and as you turn up a little more wick the flame gets a little brighter but there's a place where it begins to smoke and all of a sudden it's just not doing its job anymore so god keeps that wick short but the oil full so that the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter That light's going on in her life. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking today? Why are you here today? Why have you come to Calvary Chapel South Bay today? Why are you here? Whom are you seeking is still the question, amen? It's actually the reason that we gather together like this. We, we want to seek the Savior. I want to seek the Lord. I want to hear the word. And she, supposing him to be the gardener, I love this. She's still not quite there yet. It's like, I know he's not here. Somebody may have taken him. You're the gardener. I mean, were you like trying to clean up the tomb or something? Did you like temporarily move him maybe? Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And I want you to see what happens to the person who is seeking 
to find Jesus. And Jesus said to her one word, Mary. And with that one word, my sheep hear my voice. Mary heard that one word and she turned around and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. It also means master. At the word of the Lord, Mary turned to Jesus. Today, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. It is the word of God that turns people's hearts towards the Savior. Mary heard the word of the Lord. She'd seen the evidence. You might say she'd gone to church for quite some time. She had heard others talk about the evidence. She'd been in Bible study quite a bit. She had even experienced some of those evidentiary things herself. She had seen miracles in her own life. But she had yet to turn to the name of the Lord. And now she does something simple. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father, to your father, to my God and to your God. You see, simple faith in the word of the Lord is what transformed her life. That's it. It was not even the seeing. The seeing helped. It was not witnessing all that was done to Jesus. That helped. It was hearing Jesus speak to her that changed her life. That's what transformed her doubt. That's what lifted the darkness off of her life. All he had to do was speak her name. And she immediately recognized who he was. Can I tell you that God is speaking your name today? God knows your name. He not only knows your name, he knows your days before you were even born. He, he knows the number of hairs on your head. That's a small number for many of us. Not that big a deal. He knows you. He knows what to say to you. He knows how to address you. He knows what you need to hear when you need to hear it. He knows how to say your name so that you will turn and say, Master. He knows what you need. He knows your struggles. He knows your troubles. He knows your doubts. He knows your fear. He knows the things that are binding you up. The question is, what are you going to do when he says your name? Would you stand with me right now, please?
You see, because evidence that doesn't lead to experience is just doctrine. It could be dead dogma. You see, you can hear someone else speak the name of Jesus. You can read stories about Jesus. You can have people tell you about Jesus all day, every day. You can attend church your whole life. You can give of yourself. Jesus went so far as to say, what profits it a man if he were to even lose his own life to gain the whole world, but in the process lose his soul? You see, the question still is today, when Jesus calls your name, will you turn to him and say, Rabboni, Master, Lord, Savior. If you'd bow your heads, and I'm just going to ask you simply, if you're here today and you're a believer and you've already invited Jesus to be your master, to be your Lord, then your job right now is to pray for anyone and everyone who's in this room right now that has not done that. And for you today that aren't sure that you've ever turned towards Jesus when he called your name, your name is being called right now. Jesus is calling your name because he's preparing a place for you and he wants you to be there when you take your last breath, he wants to see you home in heaven. If you want to know that Jesus, you're saying today, Pastor Jeff, I, I'm turning to Jesus right now. I've never done that. I want you to just slip your hand up in the air. And I want to pray with you right where you are to receive Christ today. Because he loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. Anyone at all, I see that hand. Praise the Lord. That's boldness. When Jesus speaks your name, we don't know how many times he does that. I know he loves everyone. But today's your day. You want to give yourself an early Christmas gift. This is the one that lasts for eternity. This is it. This is the gift of all gifts. His life, a ransom for you. And he's saying to you, will you turn to me right now? Just slip your hand up anyone else at all praise the Lord uh, I see that hand too don't be ashamed of Jesus he's not ashamed of you I see that hand I see that hand the Lord loves you he wants to take you home for those that raised your hands if you would just pray this simple prayer just close your eyes with your heart cry out these words to the Lord believe them dear Jesus I am turning to you. I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning towards you, my Savior. I'm asking you to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, help me to walk with you all of my days. Lord, I, I know that you love me and I love you back. Thank you for saving me right now for writing my name in the Lamb's book of life. And so I give you my life and ask that you would use it for your glory. 
change me from the inside out. Lord, I can't wait until I get home. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for being my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.